It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. There goes the fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Din is being mobbed as our rule will draw. And out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. Little tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. Foul territory, the game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Now the pitch. Swung on, lined to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration! Out of the Indians' third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two-run homer, down the left field line, clearing the 19-foot wall. We are tied at six. This is our Tribe History presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. John Gladstone Grinney. All right, Al, my boy. K-Line is leading off the center fielder. The first ball pitches inside, ball one. He's a right-hand hitter. K-Line is hitting 280. Bob Feller after his 250th of the, his major league career. Strike called over the outside corner, a curveball. It's Stevens back to the plate calling balls and strikes sore at first. Reeve at second and Hurley at third. The outfield around to the left. Detroit came up with three runs in the first inning. They're leading three to nothing. The pitch, and it's a slow bounder down the third baseline. Here comes Rosen racing in up for the ball to throw to first, and he's out on a close play. Rosen to Glenn on a slow bounder right near the bag at third base. A-line goes out third to first. One out. Bob Swift, the catcher coming up. Hello, Tribe fans, and welcome back to another episode of Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. We uh, took a week off last week, and we're going to kind of ride this out and see now that season is starting, um, what the best course of of action is in terms of putting these podcasts out and uh, you know still having people listen to them versus kind of getting lost in the shuffle of the 60 game sprint that's going to be coming up and completely understandable. I would uh, much rather listen to a a current season. So again, we're going to try it out and see if this is something that maybe every other week we'll do or just wait until the season's over and, and kick these back up. So 
um, until then, we will uh, proceed as, uh, as every other week and then kind of go from there. And on this week's episode, we are going to look at Jack Graney. In the 1920 World Series podcast, I had brought up Graney briefly and mentioned that you could probably do an entire podcast just on him. So this is where we're at. John, or Jack, as he was known by, Gladstone Graney, was born in 1886 in St. Thomas, Ontario. I did the Google map, and St. Thomas is located in the southwest part of Ontario. Today, it's about a four and a half hour trip by car. Uh, it's almost not quite directly north of Cleveland, but if there were a bridge from uh, Cleveland to, to Canada, it'd be a lot quicker because you have to kind of go around either side. And Google Maps suggested going uh, west through the uh, Michigan area, but nevertheless, about a four hour car trip. And Graney was signed by the Cubs in 1906, where he pitched for Rochester and then eventually pitching for the Wilkes-Barre Club. He was sold to Cleveland in 1907, and the July 23rd Plain Dealer noted that the local management had secured an option on pitcher Gladstone Graney of the Wilkes-Barre Club of the New York State League. Graney is the youngster that was drafted by the Cubs last fall and was later turned over to Rochester. He then was sent to Wilkes-Barre, for whom he has done great work. He is a left-hander, but according to the local management, he will not do for fast company for a few years. Secretary Barnard states that Cleveland did not secure an option, but merely asked Wilkes-Barre to set a price on the youngster. The price, however, was far too high, and it is not expected that he will become even a nap farmhand. So initially, they were kicking the tires, and the price was just a little bit too high on, on Graney. Now, by September 1st, 1907, the paper had another article that said six recruits for Cleveland, half a dozen minor leaguers drafted for the 1908 Naps. Among the number are Lattimore and Graney, Southpaws. So by September, he had uh, become, you know, a possible Cleveland Nap. They, whatever the price they, they settled with, with Wilkes-Barre, they had met it. And Graney was on his way to become a member of the Cleveland cl- Club. And the plane dealer then painted a picture of who Graney was. It said, Gladstone Graney, who is to join the Cleveland Club in the premier pitcher of the New York State League, having won 24 out of 30 games pitched. He's a left-hander and has splendid curves and terrific speed. Graney is about 21 years of age and is stocky built, youngster being 5 feet 7 inches tall and weighing 175 pounds. He is a native of St. Thomas, Canada, and began baseball as a pitcher in 1906 for the Fulton Club of the Empire State League. He was purchased last fall by the Chicago Nationals and farmed to Rochester. In the exhibition games, he caught cold in his pitching arm and was let go in early May and was signed by Wilkes-Barre. And from there, uh, first made his good. Graney has baseball brains and is a fine fielder and is never known to get rattled. He is a youngster of good habits and a total abstainer. So again, he uh, didn't necessarily pan out with the Cubs, but they saw that there was a a possible future as a a left-handed pitcher after all. You don't come across left-handed pitchers as much as you come across right-handers, so you wanted to give them a chance and see what happens. In 1908, the 22-year-old Graney reported at Cleveland camp he was uh, attempting to make the club as a left-handed pitcher. Now that he was with the big boys, Jack wanted to impress, and later in life, Jack liked to 
he recalled this story that, uh, you know, it sounds fantastic and, and interesting. Um, and I'll read it real quick and then we can go from there. But he said, I was in there determined to make an impression and I made it. I wasn't content to lob the ball up for the boys to take a good cut at. I had to put something on it to show them what I had. The result was that each hitter was up there about 15 minutes before he got four or five he could reach with a fishing rod. The fourth batter was nobody but manager Nap Lajaway himself. Now, I knew all about Lajaway, of course, as every kid in America did. But I was a particularly cocky kind of kid, and I had a crazy idea that I could strike him out. I was thinking of the guys back in Wilkesbury and imagining what they'd say when word went over the wire that Jack Greeny had fanned the big Frenchman. So when Lajaway stepped to the plate, I wound up and reared back and cut loose a fastball that was supposed to get past him before he ever saw it. It never got past. Larry did not or did see it and tried to duck, but it hit him just above the left ear and he went down like a load of brick while the ball bounced into the grandstand. That evening, a bellhop told me Larry wanted to see me in his room. I went up full of fear and trembling and found him holding an ice bag to his head. I started to tell him how sorry I was, but he stopped me. He said, they tell me the place for wild men is out west. Well, you're going west, kid. Far west that if you went any further, your hat would fall. Here's your railroad ticket and good luck. The problem with that story, as great as it sounds, is it didn't seem to actually have happened. Um, he has a few things right. He his his pitching was very wild, and he was a uh, a cocky kid. But when you hold it up to historical scrutiny, there's no mention of it in any of the papers. And Greeny actually sticks around with the club in 1908, and. Um, Again, his 1908 spring training was met with mixed results. It was often mentioned in the papers. Uh, one of them said, The real event of the day was the showing made by Graney during the 20 minutes he was on the hill. His control was none too good. However, but the youngster himself says that on the whole, his control was good last year. Occasionally, he would hand out three or four passes, but usually two was his limit. The kid may not look big, but he is much heavier than he appears for he tips the scales at 165 pounds. And again, he was described going back to the cocky part as having all the assurances of a seasoned veteran that is sure of his job and shows the signs of a real class that is so often lacking in an average recruit. In addition to his fastball, Graney also dabbled with the spitball. He, the paper said he does not really claim to be a spitball pitcher, but he says that he has good control of it and depends upon it when in a pinch. Uh, Graney was quoted as saying, It has helped me win many a game last year. It did not hurt me, for I depended mostly upon my curveball and only worked the spitter occasionally. And every once in a while, he did manage to throw the ball for a strike. On the March 15, 1908 plane dealer, the, the Naps played a game in uh, Macon, and Graney, it said, was doing some good work. Pitcher mows down Southern athletes with great regularity. So he broke camp with Cleveland and got his major de- major league debut in a blowout loss to the St. Louis Browns. And as I said before, it always seems like the St. Louis Browns are mentioned in any sort of these stories where uh, you find you know, it's a deb- debut or some record or just some opening day. It's always the, the St. Louis Browns. 
But after Glenn Liebhardt surrendered four runs in one inning, Charlie uh, Check surrendered three in four innings. Jack had the mop-up duty, who where he uh, he surrendered two runs in three innings. So not terrible, but the Tribe did not get the win. His next opportunity came on May 13, 1908. However, bad luck set, set him back. Uh, it was a game against New York, and it said, The affair was sprinkled liberally with extra battery men and the one ill-timed accident which lay Gladstone Graney on the shelf for several weeks. After Lattimore started the pitch, Rhodes took up the burden and later on Graney inherited the flinging hill. Neil Ball aimed a liner at Graney's head when the youngster was doing well, and it was all off. The liner was a terrific one, and Graney either had to break his hand or his head. He chose the paw. The ball bounced off the top of Lajewe's head and rolled into right field. An impromptu doctor climbed out of the audience and assisted Doc Payne in patching up the damaged athlete. He retired to the clubhouse amid much bandages and the plaudettes of the multitudes. Uh, does not sound like a, uh, a pretty break if they needed to bandage his fingers up and... Uh, Clearly, the ball ricocheted too, and and there it hit Lajoie in the head. So maybe he's got his wires crossed, and uh, that was an issue. But his 1908 season kind of came to a, a quick end in terms of being on the, the Cleveland club with that broken finger. When Graney did return to rehab, he was eventually released by Columbus on July 6th and sent out to Portland. That offseason, he spent time in Japan as a member of the Reach All-Star team. In the start of 1908, it was announced that, as expected, they were calling him Mickey at the time, Graney was, will remain with Portland organization. Mickey was bought a year ago from Wilkes-Barre Club with the New York State League. Had he control, he would be a very valuable left-hander. But in, in as much as he cannot get the ball over the plate with any regularity, which I imagine is you know, the, the, the death sentence for any sort of... Uh, pitcher, uh, manager Lajaway could not see that the Cleveland club wanted him again. Portland will probably use him as an outfielder, for Graney can field and bat well. And during that season, it was noted that he pitched a 20-inning game, so really putting Stan Kovaleski's uh, Indians record of a 20 or 19-inning game to shame with that Portland 20-inning game. By 1910, Graney was given another chance by Cleveland. However, this time it was as an outfielder. As mentioned earlier, he was known as a decent hitting pitcher, and he parlayed that into a major league career when he couldn't find the strike zone. And as I mentioned before, it wasn't for a lack of confidence in himself either. The plain dealer noted the return of Graney. It said, uh, Jay Gladstone Graney, outfielder, Cleveland Baseball Club, Looks strange, but stranger things have happened, and there is at least one individual who believes that Graney will be playing in Cleveland's outfield by 1911 at least. That individual? Jay Gladstone Graney himself. Uh, Graney broke into the game as a pitcher and has acquired more or less fame as a slapster during the last few years. And by May of 1910, it was noted that Graney is holding his own fairly well in the outfield. He cared for his only three chances nicely. He did not get a hit, but his walk netted a tally. So Graney was having you know some pretty solid years and kind of established himself as a regular on those Cleveland Naps teams. And like any player, he had his share of injuries. We mentioned that broken finger when he was pitching. On July 3rd, 1912, he also suffered a broken shoulder when 
Jim Delahanty, the first uh, Tiger up in the fourth inning, sent a screaming liner between Graney and Birmingham. Graney came after it like a deer and dived. He managed to get the ball, but he had landed on his shoulder. Excruciating pain made him drop it. When Birmingham picked, up, picked him up, he couldn't walk. A crowd of naps swarmed around him and helped the fielder to the dugout where the naps trainer discovered his right shoulder had been broken. And with Graney, too, his career is probably more remembered for the random quirks, I guess, versus the batting averages. Um, like I mentioned, he was a solid player. He stuck around the club for quite a few years and was a, a fan favorite in Cleveland, but he wasn't Tris Speaker or Nap Lajaway by by any means. But um, you know, for instance, one of the most notable, uh, I guess, not oddities isn't the right word, but something that made Grainy unique is that uh, he had a dog named Larry, who more or less became the team's unofficial official mascot. And in a story that uh, describes everything, it was a Sabre article by Fred Schuld where he wrote, Graney had acquired the dog in an unusual manner. In 1912, Prince Hunley, the chief bellhop at the Holiday Hotel in downtown Cleveland, I've mentioned the Holiday uh, in a previous podcast. If you haven't, go look up the picture. What a beautiful building. I think Lajaway's cigar shop was in the Holiday or across the street. I'd have to Double check, but nevertheless, it's a terrible shame that that building got torn down. Um, but anyway, he had uh, bet Doc White, the Naps trainer, that Abe Attell would successfully defend his boxing title against Johnny Kilbane, a Clevelander and a heavy underdog. The West Side Irishman won the bout. Hunley had bet the dog named Prince, and during that 1912 season, the Bull Terrier became the Naps team mascot. White tried to give the dog the team superstar Nap Lajaway, who liked cats better. So Grainy was happy to receive the talented terrier, now named Tige. Tige, I guess, T-I-G-E, um, and after that season. And then during spring training of 1913, the dog was renamed Larry uh, and was the official Nap's mascot, entertaining fans before games by leapfrogging over players, backs, chasing down fans uh, who carried straw hats and retrieving foul balls in batting practice. You still see that actually in minor league games. They have bat dogs and, and this and that. But Larry got to sit on the bench with the team, and the plane dealer would often pick up on some of the uh, fun aspects of having a dog. Um, in 1913, it said, Grainy doesn't need to carry a drinking cup for his dog. All he does is fill the wash bowl with water and then crouch to allow Larry to mount his shoulders and lap up the water from the vantage point. Uh, in February of 1913, he said, Grainy sicked his dog on a stray goat that was browsing in the street yesterday. But to Larry, the goat was something new in the way of opponents. And after walking warily round and round the bearded patriarch several times and always meeting a pair of battered but serviceable horns, he gave up the job in disgust. So apparently Larry did not want anything to do with a random goat. Not sure why they were sicking him on a... A goat, but that's 1913 for you. And again, in 1913, there was uh, a question of who did Larry actually belong to. He started getting famous, and the papers picked up on it. There was actually a um, uh, a court case, and went so far as a North Dakota paper even picked up on it. And this was from the Evening Times, Grand Forks, uh, North Dakota. 
Larry first made his official appearance early in February when outfielder Jack Graney appeared in training quarters at Pensacola with Larry in tow. Larry immediately was adopted as an official mascot. He was one of the most popular members of the squad and did more training than any of the players running after the ball as it was tossed from hand to hand, chasing his numerous masters around the bags and frolicking with anyone playfully inclined. When the Naps got back to Cleveland, however, Larry was set upon by Prince Hunley, chief bellhop at one of the hotels. He claimed that Larry was his and had been stolen last fall. He took the matter to court. The judge, not only a just man, but one mindful of the well-being of the Naps, awarded Larry to the team. Thereupon, the Naps went out and licked the eternal daylights out of the Detroit Tigers, who happened to be in town at the time. Larry sat on the bench through it all, wagging all over in ecstasy and barking as loud as he ever could at critical points in the game. So again, there was a whole trial to determine where Larry uh, belonged to. It seems like a, uh, a movie or, or something of that nature. It's funny, though, to read uh, the stories that were making their rounds in the other newspapers during this time, too. Another one said, Larry, a precocious bull terrier up to a few days ago, was a member of the Cleveland team. All the games won by Cleveland this year have been attributed solely and wholly to Larry. All the defeats of the Naps had been attributed to Larry's absence from the Naps ranks when Larry was arrested. Larry has been the Naps mascot. Uh, so again, it's it's kind of funny to see. Uh, it said the dog spent a day in jail when it first uh, attached, and the Naps lost to Chicago that day, thirteen to three. Jack Graney, Cleveland outfielder, says the dog belongs to him, and Graney's claim looked good at the start of today's hearing when Larry nearly broke away from the court attendant every time Graney snapped his fingers to him. Again, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, he was awarded back to Cleveland. The papers said, Return of the mascot cheers up the Naps. Cleveland Naps are mightily encouraged. Their mascot, the Bulldog Larry, is back in their collective bosom, wagging his tail violently with joy, and they all are convinced that Cleveland is going to have a successful season in the American League. And soon after Larry was back with the club, it was, uh, it was back to the normal routine. Jack would parade Larry out before games. The... May 19th paper mentioned how he put Larry through his leapfrog stunt, which, you know, he'd leapfrog over over his back and, and again, do tricks for the fans. Obviously, in 1913, he didn't have big scoreboards to focus your attention on. So, uh, I, heck, even a player right now doing dog tricks before a game, I'm sure, would capture everyone's attention. But perhaps the most notable achievement of Larry's Cleveland career was when he got to meet the President of the United States. Uh, this was in June of 1913, and the Plain Dealer story, it said, But there was one member of the delegation who enjoyed the trip. That was Larry, the Bull Terrier mascot. No sooner had he entered the White House grounds than he spied a squirrel, broke loose, and was trying to climb the big oak tree in pursuit. It was reluctantly that he left the tree and consented to become the first dog ever formally presented to the President of the United States. Now, I don't know if that's actually true, but uh, sounds good. Inside the White House, he was on his good behavior and strolled through the reception rooms as sedately as did Manager Birmingham. So, this is Larry, the mascot, inquired the President. Yes, sir, replied Graney. My daughters tell me he is a very smart dog, continued Mr. Wilson. I am sorry I could not have been there yesterday to see him perform. I will be there today if I can. And if you've 
Ben down the uh, third baseline uh, at the ballpark. We have these plaques on the wall, kind of like the concession areas that tell the story of certain things from League Park. So I'm hoping that this sounds familiar because one of those plaques talks about Larry's time uh, with Jack in the Cleveland organization and um, like trying to get that history out there more. So if you haven't noticed it, maybe next time you're at the ballpark, you can check that out. Again, that's by the concession areas, by those new brick archways. Without dragging this on too, because this is getting a little bit long, there's, there's so many fun stories. It mentioned that Granny was giving out cigars one time and people thought they were customary wedding cigars, but not so. They were the Larry special and it bore a picture of the nap mascot upon the box. So that's pretty uh, pretty funny. And then um, it mentioned too, it, it sounds ridiculous, but the faith of baseball players and their mascots is deep and abiding. Uh, during the early season slump, Grainy's dog was in bad with the naps. Their faith in his uh, efficiency as a mascot was shaken, but now he is restored to a high standing and again permitted to play leapfrog with them. And I mentioned the 1916 podcast, how o- opening day there was a stray dog on the field and Larry came and, and scared him off and then ended up going back to the uh, the bench to sit. So. Again, Larry was uh, was part of that team, and um, you know there was a point where uh, Grainy was fined twenty five dollars, and the paper mentioned Larry, the pet brindle bulldog of Grainy, growled at Birmingham after the manager imposed the fine. But indeed, the error was so outrageous that the dog himself had slunk into the far corner of the bench when it was made. And then there's the stories where it's hard to find the evidence of the newspaper clips there was a story that he would send jack would send larry back to his home in ontario and he could put the dog on the boat and it would get to where he needed to go and and get to the house and then there's a story of how larry uh lived his last few days and um Again, I've never been able to find anything so if anyone has the clipping or if maybe it's from an interview with with Jack, but at some point it said that Jack took Larry into the Rose Building, which actually is right by the ballpark, I believe, and um, Larry got lost um, and wasn't found until two days later where he had um, gotten ill. I, I forget, it wasn't rabies, it was, maybe it was rabies, I, I don't remember, but um, it was something along the lines of that, and he had to be put down, so that was the unfortunate end to Larry, but one would think that a dog that was so popular in Cleveland, he would have gotten a notice in the the newspaper that you know he was no longer living. I think fans would want to know that. But nevertheless, if you look at team photos, actually, he was permitted in them in the 1913, and I think it's 1916. He's right in the middle, sitting on his hind legs. Uh, so he was in the team pictures. It wasn't like he was some anomaly. But nevertheless, that's supposedly the end of Larry. And some more additional quirks, I guess, of Jack's, or trivia of Jack's career. He was, uh, on July 11th, 1914, the first batter to step in front of Babe Ruth at Fenway Park. And I believe he actually got the first hit off Babe Ruth. And in 1916, he was also the first player to uh, step in the box in major leagues with a number on his uniform. So again, a lot of these first, and there'll be another first coming up, but 
During his career, Graney became best friends with Ray Chapman, and in 1916, Chapman was listed as a witness on Graney's marriage certificate when he was married in Canada. And then later on, it was Graney who helped carry Chapman to the clubhouse at the Polo Grounds when he was hit by Carl Mays. And there's uh, you know, stories that Graney thought he heard Ray saying something, was trying to write down a message for Catherine. And I think later on, Graney was still pretty bitter at Carl Mays and believed that he was a, a headhunter. So there was a very tight connection with Graney and Ray Chapman. Graney had three at-bats during the 1920 World Series, but this was toward the end of his career. His baseball career actually ended in 1922, and it was announced on July 2nd, 1922, that Graney was given his unconditional release. The paper wrote, In recognition of his long and faithful service with the Cleveland Baseball Club, President E.S. Barnard yesterday gave outfielder Jack Graney his unconditional release. Such action permits Graney to sign at once as manager of the Des Moines Club of the Western League and to be a free agent at the end of the 1922 season when he may wish to retire from baseball and devote all of his time to the Kane Graney auto business. Again, overall career was that, you know, it was a solid player, um, very good at playing left field at League Park. It was a large left field. Uh, He led the league uh, and walks twice and doubles once. He was dubbed Waited Out Jack. We had some nicknames uh, about his patience and how, like Jim Tomey, you just you could wait on your pitch and you draw a lot of walks. In 14 seasons with the Cleveland Club, he played in 1,282 games and had 92 pinch hit at bats. He actually led the league in pinch hits in 1918 um, and was pretty solid in 1920. And as mentioned before, the King Graney auto business, he uh, started selling cars in Cleveland, but the Depression knocked him around. But fortunately for him, he was able to fall into broadcasting and became the first former player turned broadcaster in baseball. And in a, a paper, it said, Retiring from play after the 1922 season, Graney managed Des Moines in the Western League and then returned to Cleveland to sell Ford automobiles. The Great Crash of 1929 as it did to thousands of others, knocked the legs right out from under me, remembered Graney. The April 28, 1932 plane dealer broke the news that Graney to be a sportscaster. When the Cleveland Indians face Chicago White Sox in League Park this afternoon at 3, you'll hear Billy Evans, Indians general manager, introducing through WHK Jack Graney, former Indian left fielder, who will make his debut as baseball announcer. Graney certainly should know his baseball. He came to Cleveland way back in 1910 and for years was the idol of the left field bleacherites. And in the next day's paper, uh, the review was, Graney shows real promise in Mike debut. Jack Graney, former left fielder of the Cleveland Indians, was doing a promising job on the play-by-play account of the Indians-White Sox game in League Park yesterday. During portions of the game, the writer heard Graney showed a knowledge of baseball, ability to call balls and strike sharply, and flair for the dramatic descriptions, which after some ex- experience should help him out considerably. Graney does a ball game as though he was umpiring it, and this fact gives his voice an added enthusiasm. There was some hesitancy during the broadcast, which Graney should easily overcome with practice. Billy Evans spoke highly of Graney as a player. And I'm not going to get into it too much, but 
if you dive into his broadcasting career, you come across these stories of, uh, I think there's pictures I've come across in the plane dealer too, where he, I think it was in the May company building or one of the, the windows on public square where they would have the, the games, I think it was, you know, through some sort of ticker or something of that nature. And Jack would broadcast them as if he were at the ballpark. And you can, you'll come across descriptions of that from people that remember grainy or who, who did and wrote it down that, he made it sound like they were actually on the road with the team when they couldn't be traveling. Um, and then, you know, the, the descriptions of his play-by-play calling, someone said, he was a careful reporter and observer. His voice dripped with sincerity and crackled with vitality. He wasn't bored with baseball. You could tell he loved his job. He made baseball sound like a sport. In 1934, Graney was in a serious auto accident. Uh, later, he recalled... I was in an auto accident about 20 years back, and my face was so banged up that I have no feeling in that right side. My lip sticks, and I need the water for lubricant. So again, he had a, a serious injury in 34, and then more tragedy in his life that uh, took place. Not only did he lose his best friend, Ray Chapman, but in 1943, during World War II, his son, First Lieutenant John G. Graney Jr., died in an Army plane crash in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Jack was informed of the news during his broadcast. The paper reported that he was informed that his son was aboard an Army plane observing maneuvers over Fort Bragg when the plane struck a tree and crashed. And Jack then, Jack and his wife were trying to get down to North Carolina when they were told that his son had passed away. And after 21 years in the press box, Jack Graney retired. On September 4th, 1953, Graney was shown or showered with gifts in his honor. It was dubbed Jack Graney Night, and 20,000 fans arrived to pay their respects to Graney. The fans had raised about $10,000 for him. One writer wrote, Graney not only is a good fellow, he is one of the very best. Many other former Indians uh, is represented by brighter pages in the record books, but none can claim more friends. The spontaneity with which the general public demanded a Graney Night when his forthcoming retirement was announced was clear evidence of his standing. And uh, Tris Speaker, his former manager and friend, was chairman of the event. Um, Lou Boudreaux sent him $50. Steve O'Neill, former teammate and catcher on the 1920 team, sent $25. Feller, on behalf of the tribe, gave Graney a gold perpetual motion wristwatch. And then um, as that final game drew near, Gordon Cobbledick wrote... I note with more regret than I have the words to convey that old John Gladstone Graney is about to retire as a radio reporter of baseball games in which the Cleveland Indians engage. A first-rate guy and, for my meager dough, a first-rate announcer, he has found the appeal of the old rocking chair too compelling to be longer resisted. Graney said of broadcasting that, This is the toughest job I've ever tried, and I've dreaded the day when it would be time for me to retire. You people have softened it for me. After 13 years with the Indians, my legs gave out, and I hung up my spikes. Now, after 21 years of broadcasting, I'm hanging up my voice. A lot of the old newspapers would often have what happened to them, or whatever happened to and name the player. And in Grainy's, this was later in his life, it said... uh, his eyesight was failing. He said, I can't follow a ground ball or a line drive or watch TV. My eyesight is not good enough anymore. I can't write a letter. 
All I can do now is listen to the Cardinal games any chance I get. Uh, I, but I don't get a chance to follow Cleveland because I can't pick them up. He was living in Kentucky. I keep my whiskers short so they can't tell my age. Uh, then he again went on to say, I always tried to give the fans an honest account. It was a tremendous responsibility, and at all times I kept in mind the fact that I, as the eyes of the radio audience, it was as if I was an, an artist, was trying to paint a picture. I never tried to predict or second guess, even though I had played the game. I just tried to do my best and hope my best was good enough. And now I realize I misspoke earlier when I said Graney was living in Kentucky. He was actually living in Missouri. I had my wires crossed with Ray Chapman, but in 1978, Graney passed away at 91 years old. And later on, he was inducted into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame as well as into the Cleveland Indians Distinguished Hall of Fame that's in our Heritage Park. He has a little nameplate out there. And as I mentioned before, we're kind of playing these podcasts by ear to see how they do with baseball season started. And obviously, sometimes it's, it is possible to have too much of a good thing. So uh, we want everyone to focus on this 60-game sprint coming up. But uh, like I said, we'll see if we uh, do it every other week. But I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Our Tribe History presented by Progressive. And we're actually going to leave you with Jack's sign-off from his last game. And that is the final game of the 1953 season. And fans, that's it. As far as yours truly, Jack Green is concerned, and broadcasting these ball games, the Cleveland Indians... And I want to say thank you to all you fans for being so kind to me over the years. 21 years back of the mic telling you just what the Indians have done. You've been very kind to me, and I hope that you have enjoyed the ball games half as much as we have enjoyed bringing them to you. I'm going to miss you more than you'll miss me. I'm going to miss the fellas that I work with, Jimmy Dudley, Al Hogler, and our engineer, Jim Schradle, and all the boys that I've worked with over the years. This is it, the end of the line. So long, goodbye, and God bless you. And till we meet again, this is Jack Rennie speaking for Jimmy Dudley, our statistician, Al Hogler, engineer, Jim Schradle saying so long from the Lakefront Stadium in Cleveland. This is the Standard Baseball Network. You've been listening to Our Tribe History presented by Progressive with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor.